All right, so Revelation. Talked last week about just how overstimulating the Word of God can be and definitely how overstimulating the book of Revelation can be. But as a way of an outline is we sit in Revelation chapter 1, we are exposed to Jesus, who is the God of gods, who has created the heavens and the earth. We are revealed to many of his attributes of his glory. We're revealed, uh, you know, that it's his love for us that he sacrificed himself for us, that we have been washed in his blood, and we're going to sit in that imagery again this morning as we do every week. But here we have this, this vision of the glorified, the resurrected Jesus Christ in many of his attributes. And then in chapters 2 and 3, it turns to Jesus himself communicating to his church. And again, when we talk about church, church is not a building. It's not a location, but churches are in locations. A church, the church is a gathering of those who have been called out of this world to assemble in the name of Jesus through faith in Jesus, through who he is, through what he's done. This is why we're here this morning. We've gathered as the church. So we're Jesus people. And Jesus has a lot to communicate to his people in chapters 2 and 3. You think about what your final words would be to your children. These are Jesus' final words in the, in the word of God that's defined as his truth that he's communicating to those who will follow him. So there's words of encouragement. There's words of rebuke. Five of the seven churches that are receiving a rebuke, the encouragement that Jesus gives to them is to repent. And again, it's not repent, you sinners. It's Jesus calling us continually, individually and corporately to follow him. To turn away from, if we're not following him, to turn away from following others to directing our life to him, to hear his voice, to understand his care, his protection, his provision, just his nature. That's two and three. At the end of chapter three, Jesus gives multiple promises in regards to what we will receive from him if we overcome and have victory in our lives through faith in Jesus Christ. That final promise is that Jesus says, you will sit on the throne of the almighty God just as I'm sitting on the throne of the almighty God. So with father, with son, we are invited into that throne which is amazing in its description because that's what happens when we sit in chapters 4 and 5. We're giving a vision of the throne that has been promised to each one of us. Not a throne for us to occupy in our own authority and our sinfulness, but it's a throne that's already occupied by God that we are invited into that oneness of relationship with him. And it really is astounding. The vision that we have in Revelation 4 and 5 is it's incredible. And in that vision, we see Jesus as the sacrificial lamb. And again, I keep bringing this up because Revelation uses this title for Jesus as the lamb beyond any other description that's given for him. And again, this lamb seen as though it had been sacrificed, what it's communicating to us over and over again is the nature and character of our God in choosing to become like us, to tabernacle in the flesh. So God emptied himself of his godhood, became a man just like you and I, and dwelt in this tent, dwelt in this body for the purpose of offering himself for 
our muck, our mire, our sin, our rebellion, our death, and to give us his life and his victory. So this title, Lamb, it's to proclaim to us continually his sacrifice, his resurrection, his worth, his value, his majesty, and his, his overarching plan. So now in that vision in, in chapter 5, we are given this, this item of a scroll that only Jesus, the lamb, is the one who is worthy to open this document. And last week we sat in chapter 6 as he starts to open the seals of this scroll. We're given a description of events that are going to transpire in the future. And it's not just here in Revelation. We have to take into consideration all of the prophecy that God has given to us because if God has spoken something, he tells us that everything that he speaks is true. So if God has spoken in the past, it must be fulfilled. Jesus gives us very clear proclamation in the Gospels that every single jot, so every dotting of the I, every crossing of the T, every letter, every word, every paragraph of, that God has spoken, it will be fulfilled, period. That means God is true and God is not a liar. So to understand the, the future scheme that he has revealed can get really complicated and it can get blurry and it can kind of shift because, oh, I think this and maybe it's that and maybe it's this and we can have a lot of differing opinions. But when it comes to the opening of this scroll, it talks about there is a, a future individual who is going to be given the authority to conquer. And when you sit in other prophecies, this individual is identified as the Antichrist. Daniel chapter 9 is the prophecy that you'd really want to sit in and understand that helps give us the timeline of this. In Daniel chapter 9, we're given this 70-week vision that was given to Daniel. And it's very specific that there are 70 weeks that have been determined for the nation of Israel, but it's to wrap everything up, to wrap up sin, to wrap up the, come, the future kingdom that is never going to end, which is the kingdom of the Messiah. But in that, there is, in those 70 weeks, it's divided into a week of seven, which is, these are weeks of years, a week is 62, and it says at the end of those 69 weeks, so the 7 plus the 62, the Messiah was going to be cut off. Again, there's this incredible prophecy that the Messiah was going to be killed. And you sit with Isaiah 53, well, why is the Messiah going to be killed? Because he died for the sins of humanity as a sacrificial lamb. That leaves one week remaining in Daniel's prophecy. For all of prophecy and vision to be wrapped up, for sin to be done away with, for the kingdom of God to come. And at this moment, with this first seal being unsealed, this is our understanding of the prophetic calendar, is that this is when this final week starts of Daniel's prophecy. So Daniel helps become a key to understand what is being described here in Revelation. And again, there's some that understand that a lot of these things have transpired in the past. As we read these visions, there's, it's just talking about general theological principles versus no. There's a, a very specific future fulfillment of what Jesus is unveiling and revealing in this document. 
So in this future leader that's going to come, this is when you hear in from, you know, the subject matter that there's a one-world government, that there's a one-world religion, and, and uh, you know, all of this is going to be underneath the authority of Satan and the Antichrist. This is the description of different prophecies that we have of who this rider on the white horse represents that's going to go out and conquer. And when you talk about conquering for an individual, for the entire structure, government structure of the world to uh, come underneath the authority of a singular individual in a singular structure, what do you think has to happen? There, there has to be some kind of cataclysmic event to get the world into that kind of structure. And as I sit in this future prediction, you know, to me, that cataclysmic event is the removal of the body of Christ out of this world when Jesus raptures believers out, that the Holy Spirit as God, as a restraining force in this world, he will cease to restrain and evil will be given a license to reign. This vision in chapter 6 as it unfolds this conquering one it leads into great violence and conflict in mankind where human beings begin to kill one another in this upheaval of culture and environment not only are human beings killing one another but when it comes to the economies of the world uh, food is going to become scarce we see that in the third horse and the fourth horse we see this description that death is riding on this horse, hell is following behind, and a quarter of the human's population is going to be violently murdered at this future event. The fifth seal, we have this vision of those individuals whose death came about because they believed in Jesus, that they are before the throne of God saying to God, how long? Again, this is, this is a cry of many people's hearts. Lord, how long are you going to let our culture murder babies in the womb? How long are you going to allow all these different injustices that we see? How long, Lord, are you going to allow this injustice to occur in my life? How long, Lord? When? When are you going to save? When are you going to deliver? When are you going to act? This is this cry that we hear of these redeemed ones in the fifth seal before the throne of God. They've been executed for their faith in Jesus Christ, and they're looking to God, how long before you avenge our blood? And it tells us that they're clothed in the, these robes of white, this, this symbol of God's righteousness. And then in the sixth seal, we have this cataclysmic event in, in God's creation where it's chaos. Every mountain, every island removed out of its place. And it's one of those things like, who could possibly survive that? And we have those who dwell on the, on the earth, and this is a repetitious phrase in Revelation describing those who reject Jesus as Savior. They're, they're not dwellers of heaven. They're dwellers on this earth. This is their home. This is their place. This is their kingdom. They ask this question, who can stand when it comes to the wrath of God, the one who is seated on the throne and the wrath of the lamb? The great day of his wrath has come at the end of uh, chapter 6, verse 17. There's this question out of humankind at this point, who is, who is able to stand? And this is really cool. So just like at the end of chapter 3, we have this Jesus promising 
those who have faith in him are going to be seated on his throne, and then he gives a vision of the throne. Here at the end of chapter 6, we have this question, who is able to stand before this almighty God? Who is able to stand before the wrath that he has against sin? And in chapter 7, we see a description of those that he enables to stand, and it's pretty cool. So we're going to read chapter 7, and we're going to finish in uh, chapter 8, verse 1. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying... Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. So Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. We'll get back into those names in a minute. Verse 9, after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all the nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know. So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall not, neither hunger anymore, nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat, for the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When he, being the Lamb, when Jesus opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. So here, this is uh, called an interlude as, as you flow through the entire document of Revelation. There is a very clear sequence of events that's described, and then there's an interruption to that description, and this is one of these interruptions. So John, is, he is, as this vision is being given to them, after what he has already seen as he's watched the Lamb, Jesus, open six seals, there's this interlude where the vision shifts, so to say, where he sees these four angels says that they're standing there in chapter 7, verse 1, that they're standing at the four corners, so north, south, east, and west, and that they're holding on to wind. You know, they have the power, the ability to control the authority. They've seized this wind. 
And again, this is, this is as we watch the events of Revelation unfold, these future events being described, it is seen as God pouring out like his, his bowl of wrath, his anger against those who are in rebellion against them, that there's, he's pouring out this wrath, he's pouring out judgment. And this is one of those scenes, can you imagine the wind not blowing? So the, the movement of gases in our atmosphere a lot of it is based upon temperature. It's based upon the earth spinning, and there's a variety of factors, but a lot of it's based upon temperature. So this isn't just the, the cataclysmic event of the sixth seal cooling the planet in some kind of fashion, but this is a divine judgment of God where he has given these angels the authority to keep wind from blowing. And that seems like it's a description that there would be an even temperature throughout the world, that, there, that as you step outside, it's just totally stagnant. We're not told if that temperature is going to be cool. We're not told if that temperature is going to be hot. It seems like it's going to be an elevated temperature and there being no breeze as a judgment upon what? Upon the earth and upon the sea and upon the trees. So as we sit in this judgment, this is one of those things in, in the Bible, like we have to keep a holistic view of God's word in, a, in our mind, not in a way that's complicated, but in a way that's simple. So who created the heavens and the earth? God did. But we have this description in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and it was void. It was empty. There was darkness upon the face of the deep, the face of the waters. We're told that the Holy Spirit was hovering in an agitating way over the waters. And then what is the first thing that God created after he created this planet? What did he say? What words proceeded out of his mouth? Let there be light. And this is one of those things. This last cataclysmic um, uh, judgment in the sixth seal, it is the order that God brought out of chaos, so to say. This is the, a Jewish understanding of how God created. He created this planet, and it was without order, and you watch God bring order to his creation in the description in Genesis 1 and 2. So here, God is, God is allowing there to become chaos in, in the order that he has created. We're watching the effects of sin, not just in humanity, but in the whole created order. So here, this is, again, this is a judgment upon his created order. And that, that, that idea is going to come up as we go through the rest of this this morning. So there's going to be this withholding of wind, but another angel rises from the east. And again, it says that he has the seal of the living God, not the dead God, not an idol, but of the God who is life itself. He has this seal. And the seal, as you think about, uh, many of you have seen like a signet ring. It can be a stamp. But what a seal is, is it has an engraving on it that as you press it into wax or if you, as you press it into something, it leaves a mark. So it can be words it can be a picture what's fascinating about this when you get into revelation 14 and it talks about these 144,000 that are sealed the mark that is imprinted upon them is the name of god which i just i just i think it's awesome because you get back into revelation 2 and 3 and the promises that jesus gave to those who have faith in him whose name did jesus say was going to be written upon you i just i love this 
you, when any human being comes to faith in Jesus Christ, you are now his possession. And that's what the mark is. A seal, a signet ring seal, it's a, it's, it can be a symbol of closure. It's a symbol of authority. It's a symbol of ownership. It's a symbol of protection. This is a very specific scene in the future, but the reality is we have been promised that as we become God's possession, he marks us with his name. And I just, I just I think, you think of Toy Story, you know, you got, uh, I don't remember the kid's name, but he writes his name on Woody's boot, right? It's a mark of ownership. Like God owns me. Not only did he create me, he reached down, and again, into my muck, my mire, my darkness, my death, my, my disobedience, and he lifted me up. And I have that testimony in regards to the grace that he has demonstrated towards me and his mercy in my life. I've been marked. I've been sealed. Now, for this future event, prior to this judgment coming upon humanity and God's created in his creation upon the earth and the seas and the trees, this angel says, wait, because there is a specific marking that needs to occur. And again, you sit in the, these 144,000, there's all kinds of weird ideas out there. A lot of people even want to try and sit in, well, it's a... Uh, there's 12 tribes of Israel, so 12 times 12. So you got the Old Testament and the New Testament. So the Old Testament tribes, the New Testament apostles, and this number 1,000, which represents perfection, and it's supposed to represent the church in general. And I just think that that's bogus. And I think that that's bogus because when God wants to be specific, he's specific. And when he wants to be general with numbers, he's general. Right here in chapter, in verse 9, he's, uh, John says that there was a great multitude which nobody can number. So if it was a general number and there was just a great multitude and it's not specific, that's the kind of language that would be used. My understanding of this is that these are ethnic Jews children of Abraham, genetically, genetic children of Abraham, that God is going to specifically seal. He is going to mark them with a specific seal of ownership, a specific seal of protection. And we see this group of individuals with Jesus again in chapter 14, and we'll save uh, that for then. But if you want to read ahead, go read uh, the first few verses of chapter 14, and you see a further description of this group. And I say that to, just to say this. Um, Again, when God is specific, he's specific. When he uses figurative language, it's, it's clearly figurative. I really think that this is specific, that he's going to seal these, these individuals for the purpose of future evangelism, that the Antichrist is not going to have an authority over these individuals. Later on in Revelation, we're going to see these specific two witnesses that are going to be preaching in Jerusalem for three and a half years, and the devil, the Antichrist, the beast... All those who stand in opposition against God will have no ability to hurt these individuals until God grants that ability to occur. I see that as the same description with these 144,000. Now, I ran through the names really quick because when you sit in the tribes of Israel, there's really 14 names. But it's always 12. Like the number 12 is very specific in God's government when it comes to the nation of Israel, when it comes to the kingdom that he is forming. 
very specific 12 apostles that were chosen. There's 12 gates on the new Jerusalem that have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There's 12 foundation stones. And so God's very specific in these names. So there's two names missing because really there's 14 names. And the reason there's 14 is because Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, he had 12 sons. And later on, he adopts Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. He says, your sons, they're now my sons. And whenever you sit in the future listings of the, the nation, the tribes of Israel, there's only 12 names in every single list. So some names are, there's always a question in each one of the lists, why are those particular names excluded? So from this list, Joseph's name is listed, and one of Joseph's sons, Manasseh, is listed. And Levi is listed, and often in the Old Testament, Levi's name is the one that is removed, and Ephraim and Manasseh are inserted. You guys all following this? Yeah, clear as mud, I know. You're welcome. I got to speak fast. There's a lot of information. So the names that are missing are Ephraim and Dan. And the reason we think that those are the two names that are listed, because those are the two tribes that dominated the idolatry in the nation of Israel. So when it comes to the tribe of Dan, the tribe of Dan was the tribe that was furthest north. And we see the, the beginnings of their idolatry in the book of Judges, where they take one of the priests and they bring the priests up into Dan and they create their own man-made religion in Dan in the book of Judges. When it comes to the tribe of Ephraim, so when you have, after Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam becomes king, and then there's a division between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, Jeroboam that becomes the king over the northern ten tribes, he is of the tribe of Ephraim. And Jeroboam's the one who has these two golden calves built, and he sets one of them in Samaria, and the other one he sets in Dan. So the reason we think that the, those two names are excluded from this list here is associated with our idolatry. And why? Because this is why God is pouring out his wrath on man. Because they're refusing to humble themselves before the living God who created all, and they're choosing to hold on to their idolatry. And the idolatry of this time is very blatant. The man who is the Antichrist in the middle of this seven years and the three and a half years, we are told that he is going to enter into the temple of God, and he is going to declare himself to be God. In this seal that is given to this 144,000, it stands in contrast to what is known as the mark of the beast in chapter 13. That that's a seal that those who stand in idolatry are going to take upon themselves in the name of another rather than the name of the true and living God. So a lot of this imagery is going to carry forward. And I told you before, this, this question at the end of verse, uh, chapter 6 of who is able to stand, here we have the description of a creature, which you and I are creatures, and how we are enabled to stand before the almighty living God. And how is it done? Salvation. Look at, look at, look at this description. There's a great multitude taken out of all nations. So here's a very specific ceiling of those of the nation of Israel. Yet those who come to faith in God and even lose their lives as a result of that faith, 
come out of all nations. And again, the all nations, you have to go back into Genesis 6 and you watch the rebellion of man grow against God and the nations of the world being described and their rebellion as they gather together and God judging them and scattering them into all these different nations. Of the nations, there are specific tribes. So nations is where we get the word an ethnic group from. In each ethnic group, they get, can get further divided into tribes, divided into peoples, divided into languages, tongues. So out of the sea of humanity, out of all of the sea, they respond to the gospel. And these are the ones who are enabled to stand. They're standing before the throne, which again is the seat of of God the Father. They're standing before the Lamb. Again, the description of his sacrifice and his resurrection. We are told that they are clothed with these same white robes that we see so many times, clothed in his righteousness, his holiness, his attributes. They have palm branches in their hands. That is, that's image of this culture for a, a victory parade. So when the Who's our football team, the Falcons? Like if they ever won the Super Bowl, we'd have a victory parade. So this is the imagery that's being given. There's, there's a, they're celebrating the victory that has been provided. They're proclaiming, crying out with a loud voice, salvation. The salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And this is, this is one of those things that... Uh, we each have to sit in our testimony in regards to what is it that God has saved you from. For some of you, you you've, you've lived a short life and you haven't had time to build a big list of sins. For many of you, you've lived a longer life and you have quite the list of sins that God saved you out of. For others, you grew up in a church context and you never knew a time where you didn't know the name of Jesus. So each one of us has our distinct testimony in regards to his grace and mercy. But what is it that God has saved you from? The idea of salvation means deliverance. It means you've been removed out of a dangerous place and you have been put into a safe place. Again, the description that we are given is that we've been, we've been taken out of the chaos of sin and we've been enabled to stand in this position of like his glory, his majesty, worship, again, all the, all the imagery that we have of Revelation 4 and 5 and now even here in chapter 7, all of this wonder, the contrast that he has saved us out of in Luke 16, Jesus gives a very clear description of what separation from God is like. And in that, whether it's a parable or it's a true story, as he's talking about Lazarus, the rich man and Lazarus, we're told that when both of those men die, Lazarus goes to this place of paradise, of comfort, of peace, waiting for the death, burial, and resurrection of the Christ, and that the rich man goes to the other side. And what's the other side described as by Jesus? Torment. Again, when you sit in Jesus' description of what hell is, what death is, the second death, death is a separation 
It's a separation from the body. The second death that we're going to sit in in Revelation, it is a separation from the life of God. When Jesus describes hell, he uses all of our physical senses to give us a description of the spiritual reality. So when it comes to the physical sense of sight, he describes it as a place that is dark, darkness that you can feel. When our sense of smell, it's the, scent, it's the smell of sulfur. When it comes to hearing, it's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, anger against God, this torment. When it comes to the sense of taste, it's this place that is dry, it is hot, it is filled with heat. There's this, the rich man asks Abraham to send Lazarus to just dip a little bit of water in my mouth to free me from this torment. And then again, when it comes to the sense of touch, it's, it's described as heat. So God uses our physical senses to help describe what this separation from the life of God looks like eternally. So when we sit in the idea of salvation, that's the image that he has saved us out of. And you have to be truthful with yourself and your relationship with God. There is, there is a tremendous fear factor when it comes to hell. And there is that fear factor can drive us to God and keep us following him because I absolutely do not want that. And I know that that's what he has saved me from. So there's not only a, a future death that he has saved us out of, there's a present death that he has saved us out of. We are told that every single human being is born dead. Even though we're physically alive, there is a spiritual death. That once we step into a relationship with Jesus, he causes his life to come within. We are born again, born from above. It's fabulous. So he saved me from my, not only the, the wages of my sin, which is death, but he saved me from each and every one of my sins, my muck, my mire, my darkness, my rebellion, what I've done to others, what's been done to me, my thoughts, my attitudes, my words. He saved me from it all. Salvation belongs to God. My deliverance from hell, my deliverance from self, my deliverance from the demon, my deliverance from this world. And this is, this is, what, this is what causes us to respond to that call to follow him, right? He stands at the threshold of our hearts and knocks on the door. He stands at the shoreline of our life, so to say, and says, come, follow me. Come and see. Come and learn from me. Come and understand who I am. Let me make you to be who I created you to be. Let me save you. What a... What a what a declaration. And this particular group is identified as those who have come out of this time of tribulation. They are enabled to stand. They are proclaiming the salvation that the God who sits on the throne and the Lamb have provided. Again, this is the, you know, the worship of the God who is and was and is to come. Is that same title is given to the Lamb, to Jesus, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this triune God. Pour out perfect praise. In the number seven, this idea of completion, when you look at the, this song that is being sung to God, 
It's sevenfold in its nature, blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might. Be to who? Be to God forever and ever. Why? Because he has saved us. He has sealed us. He has written his name upon us. This particular group has come out of this time of great tribulation. And look, again, there's a paradox here. They've washed. You know, when you wash your clothes, when you wash your body, you're dirty. The, the, clothes, the clothes are dirty. And you're washing yourself to make yourself clean. And here, this, this paradox that we've been washed in blood... But that blood of sacrifice, the lifeblood of the Messiah is what makes us clean. These are, these are ideas that I repeat every single week because the word of God repeats them all over the place. And it's where God wants our attention, especially as we go through this document. In regards to where salvation comes from, in regards to where cleanliness comes from. From the blood of the Lamb. His sacrifice on the cross is what paid for our sins. So that when we approach Him in humility, in faith, and trust in who He is and what He has done, we are declared that we have been washed clean. And some want to say, hey, this isn't a, a vision of the church. The church has already been raptured. The church is seated on the throne with God. This group of individuals who get saved in the time of revelation, they are going to have a different function for all eternity. I don't really see that at all. Because um, the description that's given for this group of people is the same description that's given later on in regards to the new Jerusalem. But li li just listen to this. The salvation that God has provided enable us to stand in his grace and his mercy and his glory for all eternity and what has made us clean and what has clothed us in his light and his righteousness. We are told that we'll be before his throne to serve him, right? He is the creator. We are the creature. Our service to him is not so that he can subject us to, to his will, but it's participating in his life, his creation, imaging him back to himself for all eternity. In his temple, his place, right, where he has always been, and not only that, but the future new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, he who sits on the throne will dwell among him. And again, this is where you get back into the imagery of Genesis. When God created Adam and Eve, he placed them in this garden, this place that was hedged in, this specific place where it says that God was walking in the garden with Adam and Eve, that God dwelt with them, and that through their sin, they violated that relationship with God and they were cast out of God's presence. And here, this is the whole idea that God is, God is welcoming us not only into his presence, he is telling us that he is going to walk with us and dwell with us. Um, in John chapter 1, verse 14, we're told that Jesus, the word of God, became flesh. He tabernacled, dwelt with man for that specific purpose. But there's a future when the living God will in all of his glory 
dwell in our midst. That is an incredible promise. Have you ever hungered? I have never been hungry. I have never been thirsty. I have never been subjected to the heat of the sun where I didn't have access to modern air conditioning. But think, we were just talking this morning, Nathan said there's a, there's a billion people today that their main purpose as they woke up this morning is to find food. Where, where are they going to find a meal today? I have never been hungry. But you sit in what it is that God has saved humanity out of and all of its depravity and all of its issues. You sit in your own testimony of his grace and his mercy. We're told Jesus in, in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, we find a, a satisfaction in him, in his words, in that relationship with him. But here's a promise to those who are destitute of food that that will never occur again and you can sit in what what is it that you're looking for god to satiate in your life this again this uh this imagery that he's going to lead them to living fountains of waters you sit in psalm 23 is this god is my shepherd the lamb this again this paradox the lamb is going to be the one who shepherds us and what does a shepherd do he provides for us he protects us he leads us he guides us all of this is a description of what it means to have a relationship with the living god who is giving us given us and will give us for all eternity his life access to a, a physical, spiritual relationship with him day in, day out, that the tears that you cry today and the pain that you sit in spiritually, physically, emotionally, and isolation, how you rage against all the issues that you see in this world that stand in absolute opposition and in evil against God, that there's a satisfaction in him. There's a peace in him. There's a contentment in him. There's a promise in him. You know, these living waters, we are told, they proceed from the throne of God later on in Revelation. And again, this is, this is you have to sit in the imagery of the culture. Have you ever been in a desert? Have you ever been in a desert where you don't have bottled water? I haven't. I've been parched. I've been a little bit dehydrated. But again, you sit in the, the imagery of what that provision looks like in a desert culture. There's a, there's a promise to return back to that intimate fellowship of what the garden was supposed to be to begin with and, uh, and all of its fulfillment. And again, in this, there's an invitation to all humanity come. Come and partake. Come and have your hunger satisfied. What is, it, what is it that you feel like you're missing in life? Job, relationship, you know, just there's, there's all this, I have A, B, and C, but I don't have X, Y, and Z, so we focus on all of the lack that we have. We are constantly invited to him, to his life, to his sacrifice, to his salvation, to his blood, to his resurrection, to his provision. And it just, it fills our hearts with wonder. So 
The worship team, come on up. Father, we just want to continue to sit in your words to, to know you because you tell us that life, eternal life, is the knowledge of you as the living God and the knowledge of your son. We don't want to sit in our religion. We don't want to sit in a culture. We don't want to sit in other people's ideas, but we want to sit in truth. We sit in this description of what's going to occur in the future, and it's, it is a fearful thing. I sit in a great deal of comfort in knowing and realizing what it is that you have saved me from, from hell, from darkness, from sin, from filth. But not only the from, but what you've saved me to. You've placed me in a position where I'm able to stand before the being who has created the heavens and the earth because he chose to. I recognize that you're my creator. I recognize that you're the one that has guided my life faithfully every single day, and you will for all eternity. I look at your patience with me, Lord, and it just, it leaves me in awe of your grace and mercy. Each one of us, Lord, we want to come to you. We want to see you. We want to hear you. We want you to truly dwell in our presence in all of your glory and majesty and until that day lord where we get to see you face to face show us what that means in truth today to know and understand that the almighty god that you're here right now and that you know us you see us and you don't abandon us but you call us to follow you to deny ourselves and to serve you. Let that be true, Lord. Let it be known, let it be understood, let it be fulfilled in action. As we started this morning, Lord, your words, may they not just be Bible verses, but may they be filled with your power and your life and your purpose. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.